This is The Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is a website and podcast that explores what good farming looks like. At theruminant.ca, you'll find photo-based blog posts, essays, gear and book reviews, as well as show notes for each episode of the podcast. I tweet at ruminantblog, and you can email me day or night at editor at theruminant.ca. Okay, on with the show. All right, folks, so this week I have a real treat for you in that I'm not conducting the main interview this week. I've mentioned a few times now that I have a a collaborator, Scott Humphreys, who's out in Ontario, and he's offered to to give me a bit of help with the podcast, and he's given me some great insight so far and some other kinds of help. And for this episode, I'll be featuring an interview that Scott recorded with Sean Butler from Ferme Forêt out in Quebec. As you'll hear in the interview, Sean and his wife financed at least part of their farm using a model they call community-financed agriculture. Now, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while will recall that in episode 20, I interviewed a farmer called Paul Schlomp, who funded his beef operation on a similar model, where he reached out to friends and family and essentially sold bonds, raised money via bonds, and paid a small rate of return to the people that invested in his farm. So you can check out that interview if you like, if you search through the archives of The Ruminant. But uh, here's here's another example of this model being put to work. And actually, as you'll hear Sean Butler mention in the interview, uh, they he and his wife know Paul Schlomp, and I think they took some inspiration from him. But I don't need to say much more. Uh, it's a great interview. Thank you to Scott, and thank you to Sean Butler. And... Uh, if you want to learn more about Ferme Foray, and that is my butchered attempt at pronouncing their farm uh, farm name, which is in French, that is F-E-R-M-E-E-T-F-O-R-E-T dot C-A. So that's farm in French, ferme, a, which is and, and then foray, F-O-R-E-T, which is forest. So farm and forest dot C-A, only it's ferme et foray. Oh man, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry, francophones. Okay, so Scott Humphrey's interview with Sean Butler in just a moment. But I'm also happy to announce that I have been getting the odd response to some of the questions I've been putting to you folks. Uh, two questions that are kind of floating around right now. One, what's, some, what's a really good idea that you implemented on your farm this year that you think other farmers would want to know about? I would love to hear from you so that I can help you share your insights with other listeners of the podcast. You can get a hold of me at editor at theruminant.ca. You can record a voice memo on your smartphone and then email it to me at that address. Uh, You can text me 250-767-6636 and just let me know that you want me to call you and I'll give you a call and we'll chat about your insight. Or you can call my Skype number, 310-734-8426, and there you'll get a voicemail, and you can just leave me a message and either record what you want me to include on the podcast or just ask me to call you back. The other question that uh, I've kind of been floating out there right now is, what are you doing in your off-season? What are you doing either just to keep yourself occupied uh, or to just make ends meet? A lot of us really need to find some income in the winter, and I'm curious to know how, uh, what kind of solutions listeners have to that challenge. So after Scott's main interview, I've got uh, a response from a listener uh, and a response to the question, 
what's a what's a good insight or what's a good idea that you implemented on your farm this year so uh, it has to do with uh, a certain approach to mulching some of your pathways in your in your market garden so that you save yourself a lot of labor so stay tuned for that but here's scott's interview with sean butler if you could actually just introduce yourself the name of the farm and kind of what you guys are growing I'm Sean Butler. I'm uh, one of the two owners at Ferme Forêt, just north of Wakefield, Quebec. And we grow uh, maple syrup and uh, harvest a lot of wild foods. Uh, we grow shiitake mushrooms on logs in the woods. And uh, we keep a flock of lane hens. We make granola. We have an orchard and a young asparagus patch. Uh, I think that's about it. Uh, what farm season are you guys in? This would be our second full season. Now, specifically to do with your maple syrup, um, this is the first full season that you guys have done that. Is that correct? Uh, the first season uh, with uh, our, our new big evaporator. We have done uh, seasons in the, in the past with a small evaporator outdoors and producing about 150 liters. But uh, this past year, we, we produced uh, 1,700 liters. So our first season doing it on a much bigger scale. To uh, fund the uh, large investment of the, the maple uh, syrup bush, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you guys uh, funded that? You guys had an interesting funding model for that. Uh, so we, we used a, what we call a community-financed uh, agriculture project. And we, we, so we basically got people, mostly people who we know, uh, friends and family and acquaintances, to uh, lend us uh, small amounts of money uh, for a short period of time, and we we give them pay them some interest. Uh, so we raise money that way. Uh, yeah. So where did you originally? So what's the, the the actual term? Let's just get it get it right. There's community financial. Uh, community financed agriculture is what we decided to call it. It's sort of play on community supported agriculture. Yeah, and we we got the idea originally uh, from a friend of ours named Paul Slump. And he started a uh, beef CSA called Grazing Days in Ottawa. And he, he financed that in the early days through selling bonds. But he got people to uh, lend him money in that, in that way. And that allowed him to purchase his cattle. And he rented land, you know, so he didn't have that. But that's where we got the idea from. It's from him. How was, like, how did you kind of pitch the, the, the community financed uh, agricultural thing to friends and family like I know that you pay them back a certain percentage but how was the reception to that or like um, you know did you face kind of any challenges or were you pleasantly surprised I'd say we were pleasantly surprised like we actually had to turn some people down at the end we borrowed as, as much money as we wanted from people so we were turning people away so it went it went uh, quite well I think People were happy to have something that they could invest in that they believed in, and that was a local business starting up, rather than investing in some um, faraway stock markets. They weren't really sure where their money was being used for, and and we we paid them three or four percent interest, so it was still a, a decent return on their on their money. That's great. So you didn't. So there weren't wasn't really any challenges in doing that. Is that something you would do again uh, going forward? Yes. In fact, we have done it again uh, this year. We raised a bit more capital that way as well. So, you know, we don't want to get too in debt to people. So we're, 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 you know, going slowly with it. We want to always be sure that we can pay people back. 
Uh, in fact, one of our sort of criteria was we didn't want to borrow more money than, than we could. If, even if our farm business failed, we'd still want to be able to get jobs and pay people back that way. So we don't want to be so in debt that we can't do that. It, for someone trying to do a similar model, like what, what, what kind of suggestions would you give to them or like how would you, what would be kind of ideas going forward for, for other farmers wanting to use it? I don't know. I mean... We wanted, we wanted to keep it mostly to people who we knew because we didn't really want the pressure oh, no, of um, yeah. owing money to strangers. In a way, it was like less pressure to owe money to friends and family. Some people might feel differently about that, but that's how we felt. And also, we, didn't, well, we really didn't have to sell ourselves very much to, because people already knew us and trusted us and knew what we were doing and believed in what we were doing. Uh, so we didn't have to invest a lot of time, really, in selling uh, us or our projects. Um, so that's nice. If we were approaching strangers more, it would be less of a, a payback in terms of the time that we put into it. Mm. Uh, we did have one investor who's just a neighbor who lives down the road who is, I wouldn't you know, call a friend, really, but he's someone I've known for a few years just from living in this area. And he gave us a substantial amount of money um, just so that was that was a really nice vote of confidence too to to have a neighbor who's, who's also a customer who comes here and buys our eggs and stuff to have that from him was was really felt good. How many investors did you guys get? <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's probably around forty or so if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. So not an insignificant amount of no. people. And so, so how did you kind of like initially send the call out for that? Was it just via, via email, via Facebook, like kind of through net, social network channels? Or was it like personal conversations or a mix of all of them? Or? Yeah, most of it came from an email. Uh, and, and people would just email us back. And a few people asked for like a business plan or something like that. But most people just, you know, trusted us basically and said, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, a couple of people might, might have wanted to actually meet with us and talk to us, but that's basically how it went. It was pretty easy. And, and did you have a business plan put together kind of at that point in time? Like for the people who asked you if you had a business plan, did you like, here you go, here's like the plan or? Yes, we had like, I don't know, a 50 page business plan. It was pretty extensive that we put together mostly for government uh, granting and lending agencies. Um, so yeah, we put a lot of work into our business plan. Okay, so, so it's not quite as easy as you made it sound, I would say. So you, you essentially put together, like, you did have a pretty significant business plan put, put together, which, I mean, you should anyways if you're starting up a business. And then, then you kind of, like, did a call out to, like, friends and family for, for potential investment. Yes, but the, the friends and family didn't want us, they didn't really care about the business plan, is what I'm saying. They trusted us. How much to date have you guys raised through the, the, the community funding? I think about 45000 to date. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got some of those are one and a half year loans and some of those are three year loans. So we've got that period of time to pay that back. So, and we try to space it out so that we're not paying back too much each year. Yeah. And, and so, sorry, there is, a, there is a, just to, to, to kind of clarify, is there, there, is a, there was a minimum investment too that you guys had? Yeah, we asked for at least uh, $500. <clears throat> so our, our model was sort of like bonds. We're selling like $500 bonds. So it would be increments of $500 that people would uh, invest in. But yeah. they're not officially bonds. They're not legally bonds or anything like that. 
And that's another thing, like, the, we could have gone deep into the le- making this super, super legal and stuff. But because it was friends and family, we just kept it to a simple um, one or two page contract that we drew up ourselves. We didn't involve a notary or a lawyer or anything in this. We just drew this up, got them to sign it. And that was, that was enough for people. So that was another way that we kept it pretty simple and, and manageable. And, and, you, and this funding has kind of like really kind of helped you guys kind of get off the ground, kind of get, getting things running. Like we just took a tour of your farm and it's like l- looking really good. And it's, it seems like you guys have made some significant investments. So I'm assuming that's helped quite a lot in terms of getting your farm going. Yeah, for sure. Like we wouldn't be here if we didn't have, have that money. Like you, to do anything with farming, you need equipment to do it on scale. So you got to find that money somewhere. And we weren't finding that money through traditional lenders or granting agencies. So we turned to, to our community, which uh, has all sorts of other pluses to it as well in terms of getting people engaged in what we're doing here. And, you know, probably a lot of those people who lent us money are going to be more likely to be our customers too in the future. They're sort of getting behind the project here. So it feels good and... I think the people lending us money are happy to do it. So it's just uh, a win-win all around, I think. That's great. Yeah, th- uh, thank you. That, that, that's, that's what, unless you have anything else you'd like to add? No. no okay, no. perfect. Oh, Scott Humphreys, you are a delight. Thanks, Scott. That was great. You know who else is a delight? Daniel Brisbois. Dan's with Fair Maternisol, and if you've been listening, you know Dan, because he has been a perennial supporter of and contributor to the podcast. And Dan came through once again when I asked all of you to get a hold of me and let me know about some good insights you made on your farm this year. Well, Dan got a hold of me right away, and he wanted to share the following with you. Yeah, shoot. Okay, so I, you know, Dan, I put out a call uh, to listeners to talk about a good idea that they implemented this year, and uh, what what was something cool you guys did on your farm? Um, we decided to use geotextile and uh, straw mulch in the pathways between our crops that are long-standing in the field. So um, flower crops, like f- cut flowers, and then also seed crops, um, and uh, maybe a couple other things too. Um, yeah, and uh, the geotextile we purchased like 300-foot lengths, which was the length of our of, of our of the alleys between our beds. And then for the straw mulch, we actually used the forage harvester to chop up um, rye from uh, rye beds and throw it into a uh, kind of a manure spreader thing. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, we kind of dropped it beside the beds and, and spread it a little bit by hand, trying to minimize the amount of work to do that. Okay, so some, some quick uh, follow-up questions then, Dan. What, are your, what, what centers, what bed centers are you operating on and how wide are your pathways? So our, uh, our bed centers are um, 60 inches uh, from center to center. And the pathways, ooh, I guess they're either two feet or two and a half feet. I guess it's probably two and a half feet. And, and did you find a geotextile that was that width? We had a geotextile. Um, yeah, I guess, yeah. So I think the geotextile we got was two and a half feet. And, uh, and it fit perfectly almost everywhere a couple places if um uh, i guess to, to back to, to step back to go back our if we don't have black plastic our beds are about 30 inches and our paths are about 30 inches 
But with black plastic, it goes beyond the 30 inches, mm-hmm. but the rows are still usually 30 inches apart within. So as long as the geotextile was on the outside of the plant and not smothering a plant, it was fine. In some places where things had been planted a little crooked or a little off, or that the, bl- the plastic had been laid a little bit off, in that case, we would kind of fold the geotextile a little bit under to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to pin it in the ground. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so uh, I have a few more questions. Uh, first of all, why was this a good decision? Like, let's, let's get to the, the outcome. It, did it save a lot of labor on weeding in the pathways? Yeah, well, for us, the month of August and mid, early to mid-September is just crazy on the farm. There are so many things to harvest and process. There's, you know, garlic, onions, tons of seed crops, in addition to the CSA harvest. And then, you know, and we move into squash and potatoes and all that. And we just don't have time to weed. Um, but also for seed crops, um, having the big weeds in there can um, can hinder ventilation and can hinder uh, harvest and stuff. So it becomes a problem. And at worst case scenario, you, you, you could have weed seed mixed up with your seed, which you really don't want that. Um, so we just we really wanted to reduce the amount of weeding that we were doing in the month of August, and it worked magnificently. Um, so, so we were thrilled with it. So Dan, why not in the past, did you ever just try taking a narrow tiller through there or were there, were there, well, I'll just leave it at that. Did you ever try that? Well, that's what we were doing in the past is, 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 uh, is, is when you say a tiller, you mean like a, like a BCS? Like a I, I guess so. Yeah. Some, something, you'd wa- yeah, something small that, that would fit in the pathway that you'd walk behind. Was that, have you ever tried that before? Well, we would use wheel hose. Uh-huh. Um, we never tried. We didn't use a rotor tiller, but we'd use wheel hose. But still, every path, you know, every you have to do it multiple times. Yeah, right. And um, and eventually, there's time. Time just lacks. Okay. So, could you quickly take me through the um, the order of things? Um, okay. And so, I'll tell you what we're going to do next year, rather <laughs> than what we did this year, because this year was an experiment, and we didn't want to spend much money until we saw how it worked. Um, so, so next year what we'll do is we're going to lay down the black plastic first and we try to lay down our black plastic in early May. Okay. So that's, um, sorry, I got to interject. So there is a, another plastic you're talking about. You're talking about some plastic you're using on your beds versus the geotextile in the pathways. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so there's okay. two plastics and yeah. I should have been more clear on that too. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so we use on many of the crops that are on the ground for long season, we use, um, a biotello. Uh, biodegradable plastic mulch mm-hmm. on the bed top. Right. So, okay. And at that point, before we plant anything in it, we're going to roll out the geotextile and we'll, we use pins to pin it down. And I think the pins are like every three or four feet. Not totally sure, but I think about every three or four feet. Um, and then, so we'll have a nicely prepared area that's either black plastic or, or geotextile. And then after that, we will go and uh, and plant into it. Right. Okay. And then um, and then you're putting the mulch over top of it. Is that um, we talk about straw mulch or geotextile? You mentioned you. I meant the living mulch, like not living, but the the, the plant mulch. You said you took some um, rye mulch and and you were mulching so, as well. Yeah. So I would say this is there's two different systems that we tried. Ah. Um, one is geotextile, and the other is using um, plant mulch. Um, the uh, the chat so you know if we 
the challenge with the system that we used this year is that we were cho- we, we were chop- chopping um, stuff from our cover crop blocks, be it uh, rye or maybe it's maybe some clover. I'm not totally sure if we got to the clover or not. So the, by the time there's enough biomass for that, it's kind of mid to end June. Mm-hmm. And um, once we apply the mulch, it does a really good job for keeping weeds down. But, you know, it means there's six weeks from the moment we put the black plastic down to the moment we're, put, we're putting, we're putting the, 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 chop, the chop mulch down, mm-hmm. the chop. The, and, and so that's six weeks of weeding. Um, it also means that by the time we get the mulch down, we've already planted crops in the beds, and in some cases we've put trellises and stuff, and that makes it a real pain to, uh, to, to go in down. there. Yeah. Yeah. The timing just doesn't work. And is this geotextile, I'm not familiar with the term, is it a reusable material or are you using well, it so once? It's also like a landscape fabric. Right, right, okay. Um, is it, did you choose one that admits water or is it impermeable to water? No, it's a water goes through it. Yeah. Um, I think it's supposed to have a five or six year life span, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling they're going to last longer than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, well, at the end of the season, we're going to roll them up. Yeah. I think that we'll probably identify what crops there were beside to have a little bit of a rotation so that we don't have, um, uh, you know, a disease transmission ah, from good point. crop to crop, which is a huge fear for us, especially like for Solanaceae crops. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just kind of rotate a bit that way. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and then I, I guess by saying that you plan to reuse this for many years, then the foot traffic on that geotextile didn't 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 kick the crap out of it this past season. No, and it's you know it's meant to be walked on. Like we in our greenhouse, we use a fabric like this as the floor of the greenhouse. You know, over the soil. Yeah. Um, and we've had the same one there. I think for nine years. It's kind of um, you know places where something got caught on it or been worn through a little bit but very few areas it's for the most part it's really working good so if, if someone wants to source this stuff because there are various kinds of landscape fabrics is it enough to say geotextile go looking for geotextile or do you happen to know the brand name i don't know the brand name we got it from uh, Zubois agri-innovation mm-hmm. uh, south of montreal in, in saint remy where we get a lot of our, our, our stuff but you know nurseries different you know all kinds of people have have have, have different stuff on on uh, in supply sometimes the width can be hard to source exactly what you're looking for but um i don't think it matters as much i I probably i would definitely go for something that water goes through uh because you don't want to have lakes um definitely between your beds definitely well dan i've surprised you with this phone call you've been very gracious in receiving it i would probably feel even guiltier were I not secure in the knowledge that you saved all kinds of time this year because of your mulching of pathways so that you had these few minutes to communicate this good idea to the ruminants listeners. Well, it's a pleasure to do that. <laughs> Thank you, Dan Brisbois. <laughs> You're welcome, Jordan. Today I well, folks, I think you all should be like Dan and get a hold of me and tell me something that you're proud of that you're doing on your farm. And we'll talk about it on the podcast. Anyway, that's another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll be back with you soon. And I'll let my wife Vanessa play you out. Wear no clothes so we never have laundry. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves. Live life like it was meant to be. Ah, don't fret, honey. I've got a plan to make our final escape. 
All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars And maybe a roll of duct tape And we'll run right outside of the city's reaches We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves And live life like it was meant to be trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be. Hello. Corey. How's it going? It's Jordan Marr. I see who it is. You don't see anything. This isn't a video phone. This is the inter it, the information age is here, my friend. Oh, uh, you can cameras are everywhere. That's creepy. <laughs> I'm gonna start calling you Big Brother. <laughs> What's going down? Uh well I'm trying something new with my podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm saying to hell. Is with... it about spying on people or? Sort of. Because if I'm... so, I'm in. I, yeah, well, I know you're looking for any reason to get out of farming. So am I. <laughs> um, I'm saying to hell with like booking interviews because I end up having like 24 emails go back and forth. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. I'm trying something different. I'm phoning uh, respected and respectable farmers mm. and I'm asking them this question mm. Is there something new you tried this year that worked well that you want to share with others? Um, having low expectations. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's very new. I don't think that's very new for any farmer, Corey. I thought organic farmers were all starry-eyed and excited. You know, 